Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Yes, greetings. Hey, hey, there you are. That's so weird. I was on and you were on, and we weren't on the same connection, but fucking technology. I think I was, um, uh, I did not put the show ID in properly or something. I'm not sure what happened. Um, But anyway, uh, here we are. So, did you get the questions I sent you? Yep, I got kind of... them sitting on my desk. Great. Yeah, so yeah I'm ready to do go. By, do, you, do you want to do this by phone, or are you going to do it uh, over the video call? Well, our system just does it on the phone mostly, so yeah, this will work fine. My guy edits okay. out any background noise, and ends up working out easy. It's easier for everybody. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, right. so I'll, you hear I'll me get okay started with this. Yeah, you sound good, Doc. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll ask you a couple, yeah, we'll talk some background on your dentist career and all that, and then we'll get into your questions, if that's cool. I always like to get a little background story on everybody so they know who you are. Sure. Yeah. No problem. You ready, Doc? I'm ready. Okay. Three, two, one. Okay, everybody, welcome to this special episode of the podcast. This episode, we have a very special guest. I have Dr. Charles Martin on the line today. And Dr. Martin is a dentist. We happen to meet at the Dan Kennedy, Glazer Kennedy um, Info Summit over the weekend. And he's not only been a very successful dentist, but also a coach, consultant, other dentists. And he has a lot of good information I think we'll pass along to you guys. So, Dr. Martin, thanks for being on the call today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. So I always like the first question I have, especially with any of my doctors, is kind of get your background story and uh, tell us how you became a dentist, a little bit about dental school, and kind of open up your practice. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'll try to give you the the two-minute version rather than the 20-minute version. Um, I um, applied to dental school and got rejected, so I wrote them back and, no, you shouldn't. And uh, I guess they were surprised, so they interviewed me. I got in. I worked my way, I actually worked while I was in school. This is a number of years ago. And uh, graduated and then started uh, looking around and uh, worked for uh, a, a, another dentist for a while. And then I realized, boy, does he have a gift of gab, but he's not very good clinically. So I went to my own practice and uh, did a lot of training. And I discovered something. And uh, this discovery was, a lot of people working very hard to be really good as dentists, which could easily apply to a chiropractor, uh, being very good at, at your profession, at your craft, at your science, uh, but they weren't being very successful in practice. And it got me thinking. So uh, I altered my course uh, a bit, and I started uh, studying uh, what makes practices work. And uh, what are the pieces that are missing? And there's a whole slew of pieces that are missing. So 
that's how I got started, and that's what led me to create the practice that I did, uh, which it you know we had it varied from being a single practitioner to a multi practitioner, uh, and that's the way I kind of went out as a multi practitioner when I uh, stopped practicing and concentrated on practice on coaching full time. Nice, very good. Nice short, sweet background story. I always like to do a little bit of that. And you know, listening to, listening at the seminar, and you got some really high level concepts that I think I wanted to pass along, and that's why I asked you to be on the show. Uh, tell us about some of your practice philosophy. Uh, maybe the seven spheres of practice that we talked about. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. If you don't mind, I'm going to start with a little different concept. If you don't mind, and it's called the problem no. under capacity. Would you mind? Go ahead, Doc. Whatever you think's best for our audience. Okay. Well, you know, most practitioners have a problem of of undercapacity, meaning they can see more patients, they need more new patients, they need those patients to say yes so they can deliver to them. So they say, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work really hard on getting my marketing going, get some good positive publicity going for myself, and increase my practice. And so they do that. And... Uh, Let's say that that's not always easy to do. I know that you teach them how to do that. But let's say they do that, but now they're going to run into a different problem. The problem that you get into having undercapacity is that as soon as you start fixing the undercapacity, you're going to get team members that are yelping that they need more help. So what you've actually trained them to do is what I call the predictable sequence. And the predictable sequence means this. They are... Uh, accustomed, I have a habit of working at a certain level productivity-wise, and as a result, when you increase the practice, the next thing they say is we need to have more people to get this work done. So I can speak so eloquently about this because at one point I had 35 staff members, 35 team members. <laughs> a very that's, painful overhead, lesson. that's a lot. Yeah. It's a very painful lesson. So in general business, uh, you know, they uh, the, the profitable companies have kind of a baseline of $20,000 of productivity per team member. So how do you do that is you take your uh, gross revenues per month and you divide by the number of team members and you get a ratio. So let's pretend that you were doing 100000 a month and you had five team members, that would be 20000 But if you were doing 50000 a month and you had five team members, that would be 10000 Obviously... Hmm. Labor is the biz, biggest expense in a practice. So what you have to do is control that factor. And one of the things that I'm doing what I coach on is how to change that number, that ratio upwards. And so that's one of the things I do. But the predictable sequence, gets, everybody gets caught in it. Uh, everybody gets caught in that predictable sequence, and it can really put them in a bad position profit-wise. And you're working really hard, but you aren't taking the money, so... You know, my uh, principle there is let's make sure that uh, that this problem of undercapacity is fixed. That's what you got to fix first, and then let's fix our productivity for the doctor and for the team members. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember that big transition years ago. You know, now I have 15 staff and three docs and everybody. But uh, yeah, you remember being rent was your big overhead and you know cable bills and these other things. And then when you start getting a little bigger and you know your your staff is just by far your biggest overhead, bigger bill, and it's it's a whole different ballgame when you get a little bit bigger of practice and you have clinical staff working for you. It's a it's a big can of worms you open up for sure. No question. So what are some 
Good. Yeah. So what are some of the common mistakes you see doctors doing with, with the handling this capacity and staff issues? Well, you know, here's the thing is that uh, practices kind of go along where you were the main guy or gal and you then hire some people to help you. And it gets to be you're the Indian chief and you have five or ten little Indians. But and then you're working harder and harder. In fact, the, the harder you work to get busy, uh, it becomes a never-ending cycle and requires eight days a week and 18 hours a day. So what's been your solution to be successful, getting through school, getting a practice going? All of that was hard work. At a certain point, hard work is not the solution. Hard work is always just the baseline of what you have to do because the game changes. So how do you know this is happening to you? Your practice is leveled out or it's declining slightly, you know, and when that happens, it hurts your ego, <laughs> it gives you a big swift kick in the backside, or it can kind of smash your dreams. You know, you find yourself being grouchy or misemotional or, or a grizzly bear, or touchy, you know, misemotional and quick to anger. That's when you know that the results you're getting from the effort put in is not quite where it needs to be. Or the last one is that your profits are declining. And uh, this is why you have to know your numbers and predict the numbers in advance. So a lot of guys will hunker down and try to cut expenses. That's good. Some will buy a new whiz bag equipment, thinking this will solve my problem, and generally it never does uh, because it's what <laughs> that equipment really costs. Uh, and the reason I can talk about all this is because I made all these mistakes myself way early in my <laughs> Then I offer different kinds of care. This will be this one and this one. And, of course, there's always a cost to, to those offering those different uh, kinds of care. Uh, there's the cost of equipment, the cost of training, the cost of learning, and it increases complexity that you deliver in your practice. And some of those profitable businesses are ultra, really quite simple. So um, there's a lot of wrong ways to handle it, and, 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 and the statement I always make is, ask me why I know. And the reason I know is because I made all these errors. Yep. Absolutely. And so you hit on something I want to talk a little bit more about. Um, you always find it's, it's very hard, more than most business owners, you know, first thing like Michael Gerber's book and stop being the doer of your business and be the marker and they're running it. And, and that's the trouble for all business owners have to go through that. But I think doctors, dentists, chiropractors to, seem to struggle with that more than most. You know, I have coaching clients still seeing 80, 100 patients a day by themselves, you know, killing their backs and never, you know, bringing in associates and handing over some of the care. So tell us a little bit about that, you know, how it, as an owner, we can transition more into owner versus just the doer of the business or the doer of the procedures all the time? Right. Well, the first, obviously the first situation you have to do is you have to get yourself busy as a practitioner because you have to produce first so you can figure out how to organize and afford to organize around it. So um, you do that. First, you overcome the problem of undercapacity. So that means you get more new patients in, or get your existing patients to come in more often for more visits, um, which is a whole different conversation. And you get them to say yes. In fact, getting patients to say yes to your to your best offerings, your best care, is really the one of the best leverage points you have in a practice, because you've already expended all that money getting them there, bringing them in through a sequence of visits. So getting them to say yes is one of the best things. So once you do that, you have to be looking at okay. Have I got my team members productive? And that, that's relating to attitudes, processes, systems, and all those things. 
Once you get that done, or well on your way, then you have to recruit additional people to fit. But all this depends upon having a plan. And the key with having a plan is not the plan itself, but all you went through in the planning, because all plans have to adapt. Um, you know, there was a, uh, what was the prize fighter? Uh, that's, and I can't give you, I can't remember the name's name, that he said. Oh, uh, I think Mike Tyson, yeah, everyone's got to play until you get punched in the mouth. I think Tyson said that. Until you get punched in the mouth. And practice is like that. You get, you know, hopefully not punches in the mouth, but certainly <laughs> punches that you have Pretty to Pretty close, adapt. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you have to always be adapting and understand what's going on. But the, but the, one of the key elements of all this is for the doctor to have a, have a strategy to manage all of this, because that's not always easy. And having a plan, which is really about the planning, uh, to know, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Most doctors don't do nearly enough planning or preparation, and preparation and planning are keys to be able to go forward. So, uh, so you handle your capacity, you increase your capacity even further by getting your processes down and your team, and then you go in and you start increasing the practice. Um, but trying to add practitioners in before you and your team are ready, including your marketing, all the seven spheres of practice, which we're going to get to, is going to cause problems. And you're going to have unhappy associates or unhappy partners to be because things aren't ready for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think people bring on the bring on associates tonight in the wrong way. And yeah, like you said, you got to be prepared ahead of time and have the marketing. And I know at least in chiropractic, sometimes we expect the associates to be bringing business. And you know, ultimately, like Dan says, you know, you're the marketer of the business. You're supposed to bring in the new patients, have assistance for the associates, and and they just deliver the care. So I think you're you're definitely onto something there. Uh, to, I think now we're moving on to uh, tell us more about your uh, seven spheres of practice there, Doc. Well, the seven spheres of practice are relatively simple. Um, and uh, so let's just think about what it takes to have a practice. First of all, you have to have patients to work on. And I call this new ones or patients to work on. So that's sphere number one. And to, to add people to that sphere, you obviously have to have uh, positive publicity, be known in your community, and have good marketing to help bring them in. Bring them in. Uh, sphere two is getting them to say yes. It is okay, what do we need to do to get them to say yes? As I said earlier, this is your highest leverage point for a practice because you have no expense, really, typically, or very little expense in improving this. And this can be really the main break point between profitability and not. The third sphere is delivery. And, of course, that's probably the place that, you know, 95% of the work that is done in, in for a practitioner is how do I get better at what I do? And I know that in dentistry, 95% of all the training is in that clinical area. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not enough. You know, you can't build it and they will come. That isn't the way it is. There's just too much competition. The fourth sphere is retention, reviews, uh, and referrals. So that's the R sphere. Um, if you retain clients, uh, it, it goes, and things become much easier. Of course, most practices spend far too little time and money on retaining those patients, and as a consequence, they don't get the reviews they would like to have, and they don't get the referrals they'd like to have. 
The fifth one is finance, because if you aren't managing that properly and knowingly, and I say knowingly, meaning you know how much it costs you to deliver and you know how to charge fees for what you're doing, and most doctors don't, because they do it kind of by the seat of their pants, it causes real problems. The fifth sphere is organization operations. How do you put this whole thing together? And one of the key elements to this is actually having a routine of how you manage the practice. You, some of this could be scheduling with yourself. When am I going to do planning? When am I going to meet with my team? When are we going to gather our metrics so we, and review them? So they're just three simple places. It's more than that, obviously, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm a proponent of having a weekly team meeting, a weekly strategic meeting with yourself and with you, whoever you confer with, uh, a monthly meeting, a quarterly meeting, and then an annual planning meeting with your entire team. So beyond this organization operations is the seventh sphere, which may be in many ways the most important in some ways, which is leadership and people. Uh, really, the practice will grow as fast as the leader grows. And really the theme here that we really haven't even mentioned it, but it should be, it will be apparent when you say it, is what got you here won't get you there. And what do I mean by that? First of all, I'm not, I'm not talking about the Marshall Goldsmith book of the same title, which is really talking about you as a person, as a leader person. Um, I'm talking about the fact that as your practice grows, the game changes literally. And the places to look at this are in the number of people you have and your revenues. Because at, at different numbers of people, the game changes, and, it, and practitioners will know that. I went from one team member to three. I went from three to five. And then I went from five to seven. Then I went to ten. And what starts to happen is that the communications that were pretty clear, pretty simple, pretty straightforward at one and three and even five become a lot more complicated at seven, ten, or twelve. And so that's when you really have to begin to get juniors, if you will, people that will be in charge of different areas of your practice for you, uh, for you to guide. But that game continues to change. And it's this is the reason that you will see uh, venture capitalists who get a controlling interest in a new startup company change out CEOs because they haven't been there before. They don't know what to do. And that, that venture capitalist knows I need to replace that person, even though they founded the company, because they aren't ready for the way the game's played now. Make sense? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I've noticed just running the practice all these years and as the main provider of services to now more of you know, managing and overseeing how you know, your skills have had to change and things change over time. And luckily I spent more of my time at seminars about how that kind of stuff and not just doing my, 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 my case anymore. But uh, yeah, some really good stuff. You brought up a little bit about uh, you know, the venture capital, and you, we shared an interesting story about you selling your practice. I always kind of like to hear exit, exit stories from, my, from the docs on the show. So tell us a little bit about what it was like selling your practice, and you had a pretty unique experience, I guess, selling out your practice. Well, I had a practice that was big enough that a single practitioner wasn't going to buy it. So I sold it to a larger entity, and uh, there was some negotiation, obviously, it went on. Uh, and they came back to me with a... a offering I rejected it and uh, they came back again I rejected it again um, and, and we finally agreed upon a, a, a nice uh, price for the practice 
one of the things that that when doctors are looking to exit their practice um, is that most practitioners who uh, say I want to sell my practice uh, don't understand the process they don't understand the due diligence that most buyers are going to use uh, when selling their business when evaluating the business they don't understand the financial metrics that are involved which is typically some ratio of EBITDA um, you want to go in further into this area yeah yeah this is fascinating yeah, please do okay well you know a typical um, business will sell small business uh, will sell between one one to three times EBITDA and EBITDA defined is earnings before interest taxes depreciation amortization really it is what's the cash flow that the acquiring business can count on once the debts are paid uh, if they would generate the same level of production and collection so they do that as a ratio of that EBITDA number and for most really small businesses it's one to three the larger the more diverse the business uh, from the standpoint of locations and the longer the history of success the higher the EBITDA goes so a multi-unit multi-location business that has a good profit margin and I'm talking about profit margin here beyond just what the doctor makes uh, but there's actual profit beyond that uh, well that that EBITDA multiplier will go from uh, from 5 to 7 to 10 to 12 or even higher this is true for a dental practice I'm not sure it's true for a chiropractic practice but I would assume that it would be uh, it will go higher as the as the business is more diverse and more units and more predictable cash flow so the the, the buyer is willing to pay more um, when uh, a a buyer uh, has a lot of cash uh, you know they're actively searching uh, they're going to probably be more more willing to pay more money for your practice um, one of the uh, of course in chiropractic I think you have some franchises that, that are actually helping doctors operate their practice and I happen to know the, the largest one uh, work with that fellow for a while um, so anyway you know the the element to of, get, of exiting your practice has to be around are you prepared to exit your practice and the good news is is that the preparation of getting your practice ready uh, has the side benefit of making more money now and making your practice more valuable later yeah, that's a good point. A lot of people, you don't realize you do have to prep for it. You can't just wake up one day and uh, and hope that somebody buys it. There's a lot of prep work, and a lot of us aren't really good at these financials and you know office manuals and procedure manuals that we should have in place anyways. But preparing for a sale is uh, definitely a good way to do that. Yeah, we haven't seen the outside money come into chiropractic yet, but I've seen it in the veterinary dentist, you know, the investment capital and that, uh, some veterinary offices. I know there's even the pet food companies are getting involved buying them out. But uh, we haven't seen a lot of outside capital yet with chiropractic, but I think we'll see it down the road. Um, yeah, if you, after all that information, you maybe summarize up a little bit about your seven spheres and your philosophy on, on practice management for us, Doc? Well, I, you know, I think that, that one of the key elements here is this, is that, you know, as a practitioner, you always want to take care of your patients. I mean, that's that you want to make a difference for people. And in healthcare, we have the great benefit 
of creating success for ourselves and success for our patients. So we become significant in our communities. A lot of business owners look for creating significance. <laughs> They'll donate lots of money in different places. But the reality is, in healthcare in particular, we're significant right from the get-go. So staying on purpose is always a key element. In fact, whenever you feel yourself waning, look back to why you got into business in the first place. But here's what the thing I want to, the point I really want to make is that you actually have two things you deliver. You deliver clinical care, but the second thing you deliver is a practice that can deliver it, the creation of that organization. And it's based upon its core values, what I call the heart, soul, and goal of the company or the practice. And the heart being why you do what you do, its purpose. Um, the soul is what do you hold dear and near? What are the things you live by, the values? And these values typically are going to be anywhere from five to seven or even nine different values that are the principles upon which you work and that you share with your team members. And the great awesomeness of that is that when you share those values, they get to know automatically how to make certain decisions based on what your values are. Unfortunately, most doctors never articulate those values. They never write them down. They never write down their purpose. Or if they do, they haven't revisited them in a long time. And so, of course, the goal is what is your big outsized goal that's 10 to 25 years down the road that you probably have no idea how you're going to get there? But if you don't make it, you'll never get there. <laughs> so. Um, if make big goals, make a big outsized top of the mountain goal, and so you live out of that. Um, so that's one of the essential elements of creating your organization is that cultural foundation. And it, when you do it that way, the heart, soul, and goal of the company, then you create some solid bedrock from which to work from. You have to have a strategy, of course, and most people get so confused about strategy versus tactics. And strategy, simply put, is how are you going to get to where you want to go? What is it going to do? What's going to be different? And, you know, one of the two questions that all customers ask is, well, if I'm going to see a chiropractor, why should I see you? And is the difference important to me? You know, is that difference an important difference? Um, gratefully, we're not competing, competing on a national scale. There's thousands of us, in case tens of thousands of us, because we need for all the different localities we live in. So, but those are still two questions that are that are key elements towards uh, getting your strategy defined. And of course, then after you do that, you create a three to five year plan, and then you break it that and down to a one year plan, and then to, into quarters. Boy, we're we're going across the landscape here. I uh, hope this is too broad. <laughs> no, it's a lot of good broad. stuff. Yeah, there was a couple of good things that I wanted to reiterate to our listeners there. I mean, one, you know, looking ahead, I'm not sure who originally said it, probably Dan Kennedy, but, uh, you know, poor people look forward to the weekend. You know, middle class people are looking forward to the summer vacation, and wealthy people are looking 10, 15, 20 years ahead. So, yeah, that was a really good point there. And you're thinking of core values is big, too. You know, I'll tell that the coaching clients are speaking, and, yeah, people want to do that, but we do like an office retreat every year, and we sit down and we go through our core values, we rewrite them, and we do it as a whole team. And what kind of happens is, like you said, when the team gets the culture, like we're testing out a new staff person, like our first core value is that on time is late in our office. Like if you're, uh, you know, you're on time, you're late. And 
if a new person's testing out their first day and their shift starts at nine and not here by eight forty five, like the rest of the staff are like, Nope, they're out, they're not working here, like they're you know, they defend the values for you if you set that up properly. So those are two key nuggets you gave in there I didn't want people to miss out on. So yeah. Doc, there's a lot of good info, a lot of good sharing. I really appreciate your time and being on there today. If people want to get in touch with you, check out your information or work with you, tell us how we can get a hold of you. I'll just go to, to uh, www.masteryourpractice.com. There's a bunch Master of free practice. resources on there and a book that's ridiculously <laughs> cheap. I even put a guarantee on uh, called How to Master Your Practice. But there's some reports there on scaling up your practice, on scaling up your business, and uh, what I call dental practice breakthrough. Truthfully, it would work for any practice. So I think they might enjoy those. So it's masteryourpractice.com. Masteryourpractice.com. Yeah, so everybody go ahead and check that out. I met with Dr. Martin at the seminar, and I'll tell you, he's a, he's a very, very bright guy, really high-level stuff he's talking about and coaching with, and definitely highly recommend you check out his stuff. So, Doc, thanks for being on the show, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.